0: that up here, I-Core, double underline. Uh, In a few moments, we'll use some different colors. Um, But glad you like that. In October of 1996, so we're going backwards a bit, uh, during a church service where I was an associate pastor in Port Washington, Wisconsin. Yeah, October 96, the Lord just dropped a burden in my heart about the identity of the church, the biblical identity of God's covenant people, the house of the Lord. And as I, as I grew in faith and in knowledge from that point on, I, I, I understood just a little bit better as time went on what the Bible plainly teaches about the body of Jesus Christ versus what was typically happening in the church world, uh, with its denominational fragmentation, its, you know, centering on celebrity preachers or pet doctrines, uh, gathering people into more of an attendance culture rather than a discipleship culture. So at that time, I began a journey toward whatever the lord would give me to contribute toward the restoration of god's house i knew very little at that time so i could do very little but as i grew and the chasm between the plain simple biblical meaning of church and the modern traditional view of church as that chasm grew my understanding grew a little bit more i'm not claiming to to have you know to have arrived but the more I understood, the more divergence I saw, so my maturity had to catch up, so i wouldn 't be frustrated, and i wouldn 't be um, you know teaching out of that frustration or pride because you know i haven 't arrived myself, so I should be gentle with god 's people so once that maturity got to its probably bare minimum, the Lord uh, enabled me to do just a little bit more about it, and that is what this present work is about, we were discussing last night in a leadership meeting too, you know, I'd like to see this reach a certain spiritual skill level and corporate conforming to the image of Jesus so that it can be replicated easy, easily elsewhere, especially among those who are already doing ministry in church. People who are brand new to the Lord, you could just teach them from the beginning and they don't have some kind of preconceived notion that has to be undone as we're redoing things. Uh, Nonetheless, we're in this restoration process. So several months ago at one of these corporate gatherings when I was teaching, uh, they were our turning point messages, I believe, when we had that prophecy, there's winds of change coming, the winds of change are coming. Do you remember anything else that was said during that prophecy? We just knew, well, at least the prophetic word declared. There were changes coming and to expect that embrace uh, embrace for that. And so it seemed to have been predicting these shakings that we're now experiencing, a pandemic with all of its fear and restrictions, whatever is going on behind the scenes, conspiratorially. You know, we're not given to chasing conspiracy theories, even the accurate ones, because the spirit behind such a pursuit is not God's spirit. Nonetheless, they're happening. Uh, So the pandemic, the restrictions, everything that goes with that racial tensions, ideological chaos, a dividing line between the right and the left, which has always been there. But now, like never before, at least in my lifetime, national division as a result of that, the shaking is here. The winds of change are blowing. And so now more than ever, we are highlighting the need to bring restoration to God's house. We need our identity crisis to end and to just realize biblically, simply who we are and what we should be doing rather than allowing such confusion with all the different traditions and background where the house of God, the very body of Jesus Christ, has been defined by so many factors other than the word of God. And then when you talk about it, people are like, oh, I don't understand. It's like, yes, you do understand. That's the problem. The problem is not that you don't understand. The problem is that you do, but you're not willing to let go of the old wineskin. So you're trying to figure out how to do what the Bible simply says and what we've been doing. And they don't go together. So that's not mental confusion. That's heart confusion. That's where the confusion is. So my point is this. These winds of change are not what's calling us to restore identity to God's house so that we can bear the image of Jesus. That's not what's causing it, okay? This restoration process has been in motion since the Renaissance, since the Middle Ages, if not before, and whatever else history does not tell us. Because the the church has gone into a nosedive in in its more Gentile, secular, state-sanctioned identity since the third century. So our identity crisis is not something that's it's it's that's new. It's old. And God has been sending different kinds of moves of the spirit, revival, reformation in order to bring layers of restoration to God's house. So we've had things beginning, at least as far as history can tell us, you know, movements toward putting the word of God back into the hands of God's people, rather than run by the elite um, leaders in the, the 15th century and then the 16th century, there was reformation and then on and on um, in Europe and even in uh, the Americas and and then into our history, there have been different revivals that have brought different levels of restoration to God's house in, in centuries, really one century closer to us in our own Western culture, Pentecost was restored the turn of the 20th century, uh, the charismatic renewal brought that in the late 60s to more denominational churches. We've had different kinds of revivals since then, the prophetic movement in the 80s, different revivals in the 90s. You know, there was much more than this, but this is more of history that I'm familiar with because I lived through a bunch of it, not the late 60s so much. I was too little and unsaved to understand that. But anyway, the point is, God's done a lot. We've been in a long process of restoration. And I want our generation to do our part so that we can then hand over the next level of restoration to this youth group sitting over here. (laughs) Um, And that includes you, Greggy. So, yes, sir. (laughs) And Brian, I was... Okay, you too, Brian. Sure. Yeah, you're in the group. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, um, all of these shakings going on in our nation, they're not. Um, this is not why we're restoring the house of God. The house of God needed restoration before this was happening. Now it's just highlighting the need. So maybe we got a little bit of a head start, some of us, but we're going to have to catch up quick now. Um, I don't know all that's going to happen. Maybe there will be some semblance of peace and civility restored after there is a, a, an official election, because either way that goes, there's going to be, I suspect, a little bit of shaking after that, no matter what. And our job is always to serve the Lord like it's our food. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. And so this is a great occasion for people like us to be even more separate from the world, to be even less dependent upon its securities and its acceptance and more dependent on the Lord. Right. Happier the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And this is a condition of heart that I need rectified also because it's it it's it's needful to have a work of the spirit in our heart to be less attached to our cultural environment. If it's been friendly toward us in certain ways, then uh, than what normal Christianity usually flourishes in. Did that sentence make sense? No, that I did. I lose my bearings in the middle of it. OK, my heart needs help. I need a move of the spirit in my heart. To, uh, to embrace the values of the kingdom that Jesus lists for us in Matthew chapter 5. Happier the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. Happier those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Happier the meek, they shall inherit the earth. You know, the, Jesus teaches his disciples to have happy hearts based on a coming age. Not on the present age. And he, he teaches that Now, this is making sense, Gina. He teaches that at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount so that we can tolerate the rest of it. Jesus says, look, here's a vision of the kingdom that's here. And it's really coming. That's where your happiness should be. And if your heart is happy in that, you can do anything. You can walk on water if your heart is buoyant with a vision of the coming kingdom. If it's divided, your heart is heavy. And you can't float. So the divided heart is not is not a happy heart. If it's happy, it's happy on the wrong things. And that will be exposed. So we're living through a very minor period of exposure right now. We're being exposed. We're not we're not saying, oh, things are happening. So let's now restore. No, we should have already been in a restoration uh, process. Now we're being exposed and maybe. We're being motivated to be more urgent, more diligent. You know, before I've I've declared it was time to build, I believe that was a prophetic word that God's saying, we're now in a season to build his house his way. I still believe that's a prophetic word from the Lord. It's out of Haggai, out of Ecclesiastes 3. It's time to build God's house God's way. Now the updated version of that is it's still time to build, but it's also a time for War. That was our topic last time, which means we're building during wartime, spiritual war, like the exiles that returned, Ezra and Nehemiah. They're they're building with building tools in one hand and a sword in the other. So the the winds of change have exposed us. The pandemic has exposed our powerlessness more or less, you know, Praise God for the wonderful healings that we experience in the body of Christ in the Western world. But um, we, we need to we need to uh, we need more grace to kill these viruses in people, to raise up the sick, to break the, the virus and whatever other diseases. People have my own family, you know, my mom and we, we we need the power to heal. We need the Jesus people restored. We're being exposed as an attendance culture. Versus a discipleship culture that's family on mission. We're being exposed as those who have a lot of deference to our government. You know, respect and obedience in righteousness is one thing. Deference to our government that substitutes for deference to King Jesus is quite another. And we also have a massive and embarrassing dependence upon social media as to give us a sense that we have power. An influence. That's being exposed. We don't. If we can't do it locally in our homes and in our church and in our city, then we can't do it nowhere else. It's fake and it will be exposed. The, the, the digital world has virtually, (laughs) that was free of charge. The digital world has virtually replaced the Holy Spirit in many churches. The racial tensions have exposed our lack of a gospel of peace, which is a conciliatory gospel. It creates a new family where uh, racial, ethnic, cultural, uh, uh, economic differences are melted into a family that does a little thing called love one another in the bond of peace, which is deeper than judging by what our eyes see or replicating our cultural tendencies inside the church, which is precisely what was going on in Corinth. They had enough gospel to be saved, but everything else, the way they lived, was just reflecting their city inside the church, reflecting the empire's values. So all the divisions were there. Uh, All the, the, the worldly lifestyle was there, but they had enough gospel to be saved. So what Paul did was he wrote an epistle that we call 1 Corinthians It's really a sermon that is a template for restoring the house of God. See how I tied that together? That's why we're going to look a little bit at First Corinthians today. So we're exposed as having a lack of a gospel of peace, a gospel and a church that reconciles ethnic groups, not just government policies or trying to change the hearts of people in our culture, which is fine. That's a prophetic, a prophetic influence the church should have, but it should be happening in the church. Uh, In the life of the Holy Spirit. So we've been exposed in our confusion over the church's actual identity. We didn't get confused when things changed. Our confusion was exposed. We don't understand who we are and how to maintain our primary gospel disciple making mission, which we mostly weren't doing before this. And then secondarily, though still importantly, speaking prophetically into our social justice issues. If we had done the first, we'd have more kingdom cred to do the second. The ideological chaos has exposed us as having a lack of objective biblical theology. We see our Bibles through our cultural biases rather than through the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation, which is why Paul prayed for that in Ephesians 1. Where are the apostles who even pray for that so that our lenses would not be defined like the Samaritan woman saying, why are you a Jew speaking to me, a Samaritan woman? And Jesus said, oh, if you knew the gift of God, you would ask him and he would give you water that you will never thirst again. Right. It's like, so, so we see things through our own personal ultimate issues rather than God's ultimate issues. And these are ultimate issues in the human heart. We can't be divorced from them, or we're not humans, unless the Spirit comes in and circumcises our hearts. Anyway, we're exposed for our lack of biblical theology. Even the greatest evangelical Bible thumpers contradict the Bible in so many ways they do church and ministry. (laughs) Like, whatever. You know, complaining about the charismatics being all experienced, oriented, and just, just about everything you do in church is contradicting what the Scriptures teach. We're duped. We're exposed. This lack of biblical theology has also exposed the lack of eschatology. Whether you believe the right thing or the wrong thing, was that symbolic, those three frogs coming out of those, the mouths of the beast and the Antichrist and the dragon? <laughs> How do we interpret that? Okay, apocalyptic imagery is difficult to, to, to discern perhaps at this stage of the game. But let me tell you this, we should be in love with the appearing of the Lord. And the day of the Lord should exert influence over the way we live now. And the lack of a vision for the day of the Lord means we are in love with this age. There should be a an emphasis on the Lord's day because it's his day. We should want that day. Yeah, but there's another day coming. That's his day. That's why we have the armor of God in Ephesians six so that we can stand in the evil day. There are days of evil. That's why we redeem the time because the days are evil. They're not fully given to his sunshine right now. He's not fully exposed. But there is a day coming. And we should be anticipating that day the way we were anticipating our wedding day when we were engaged. Or some of you who will be engaged someday. Or whatever day, Christmas is coming. (laughs) Geffen and Jana and Finley are coming. (laughs) We're looking forward to that day. Our family is looking forward to the day that our kids will come from Wales With our grandson. We're looking forward to that day. That's a special day. See, we look forward to special days, don't we? We should be looking for the Lord's day. When he rights wrongs. When the mistreatment of children in secret places right now. In dark places in the nations. When Jesus will come back with eyes of fire and right all those wrongs. And heal and raise from the dead all of those children. We should be looking for that day, longing for that day, right? We, we. This is one of the things I'm yet to talk about tonight. Lo and behold, I'm already talking about it. It's kind of like the day of the Lord. There's little days in in between, but then the day is coming. Okay, we need our lack of eschatology is exposed. We lose our bearings when the world shakes because the world had our bearings rather than the day that's coming. That's where our bearings are. And my heart needs reconditioning to that end. As perhaps some of you might need. Not all of you. This is why Paul says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm willing to die for Jesus. I mean, there's there's some Christians today just to go to one house church meeting. Maybe the last time they ever see their family again. Their, Their eyes are on a different day. I need my eyes trained, my heart eyes retrained and refocused. This has infected ministry styles, public ministry, the goals, the motives. It's it's unbelievable, and yet, and yet, this is just p- p- the pure milk of the word. It's just the gospel. The the vision for the day of the Lord is repeated over and over and over, and over, 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 over again. Mike read one verse about the, the the end times should be dictating our sobriety in our prayer life, and that's one of a bazillion that's there. The whole Sermon on the Mount is predicated upon a vision of what's yet in the future. So that we will live now fully in the spirit, not so that we'll have an escapist mentality, but so we'll have the opposite, a sober mentality, fully surrendered to the king. This ideological chaos has also exposed our lack of the knowledge of God and of his Christ. And that the division in our nation has exposed our failure as the church to be an actual family that makes the world jealous to come out of its fragmentation and brokenness. There's no one on either side of the aisle who does not know Jesus. No unsaved person is fully satisfied until they're a part of the family of God if they dare become that. There's something missing. So we should be the alternative, but our national division has exposed our failure to be the actual family of God, the covenant people, so that instead the church has mirrored the secular culture rather than creating heaven's alternative to it on the earth. And as a result, there's been no transformational glory abiding in the midst, at least not consistently. I believe it's important that we return uh, to our roots and get subjected again to the gospel of King Jesus and restore the house of the Lord. So we give God an address where he can live rather than just visit. That was a good amen time right there. I was trying to build it up with the way I my inflection worked and see you guys are just, you're not going to be moved by just the speaking lack of talent. So be it. So our identity needs restoration, not because of this hour of crisis, but through it. Harnessing its pressure to help us know Jesus better and become like him together. So I want to give you a list. Each one of these points I will only touch on. Each one is a year long series in itself. I'm leaving that to you. I'm going to give you the list. I'm going to give you some key passages and give us all some things to talk about in our church life as the spirit leads. But let me give you my four points. These are the four points of First Corinthians. So this is a survey of an entire sermon from Paul to the Corinthians. That is a an apostolic template to restore the house of the Lord. It's called Wisdom. And it's in the scriptures and it should be um, what undergirds and informs all of our prophetic activity, which is one of Paul's points that we have prophetic voice. Well, the first point is that we must refound, refound the church, refound. Can I say that? Refound as in foundation, refound the church on the scandal of the cross, Number two, we must regather, regather the church in the spirit of love. The way we gather should be in love. Paul did not understand how to gather except in love. And the only way to gather in love is to gather as a body with mutual honor and sharing the gifts of the spirit. If we don't gather that way, we don't love one another. Yes, I said that. According to Paul, 1 Corinthians 12-13, through there is no love if we're not in a family covenantal atmosphere that shares the gifts and meal. Even if there's a main teacher at, at times or at, in, in every meeting, however we choose to do that, if there's not an honoring and a participation of everyone and the Spirit himself is the one speaking and revealing Christ through a body, then we just don't love one another. Because we need to hear from one another in the Spirit. And so if we're not doing that, then we don't really love one another. So we have to regather in the Spirit of love. That's what Paul taught. And by the way, he taught that to a church that was charismatic and abusing the gifts. And his answer was not to get more standardized and water down the gifts. That was not his answer. His answer was get them in order, let your motive be love, and show one another love by edifying rather than drawing all the attention to you. Thirdly, restore the church's prophetic voice. Let's say we gather a spirit of love. Let's say this. Spirit of love. There's a heart. Number three, uh, 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 restore the church's prophetic voice. Restore the church's prophetic voice. Restore the church's prophetic voice does not mean prophesy more necessarily. There's a lot of prophecies out there uh, it needs to be cleansed and and brought into uh, subjection to the Lord and the house of God. Notice how this is number three. After you reestablish the cross, <laughs> little little uh, minor factor that needs restoring, the cross back to the life of the church, then gather the right way. Then you're going to have things in order to prophesy responsibly. And then finally, where we kind of began, Paul ends with, let me get my R word here, recapture, recapture the church's destiny, which is manifest on the day of the Lord. It's all here. It's in this letter and it's all throughout the New Testament. There's nothing new. Paul is consistent. Peter is consistent with this. Jesus was the headwaters of this entire river that's flowing. These sorts of things are all th- throughout the New Testament. It's not complicated. It's, it's all there. It just, it requires an approach with humility and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So the text I'm beginning with is back in, well, chapter one, which I had you turn to earlier. We'll look at verses 17 and 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 17 and 18. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna get a little crazy here and go back to verse 10. Oh, and then we might skip down, but this is, this is like the thesis statement of the entire sermon, right here. Now I exhort you, brothers, By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. Literally, the Greek term, and some of your Bibles may translate it this way. It says that you all say the same thing. It's an idiom that means agree, but it's a little graphic. Say the same thing because of the problems in Corinth. So forgive me, I'm going to skip down to verse 12. Now, this is what I mean. Each of you is saying. You see what he's referring to? Each of you is saying, I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. You're saying this. So I say, say the same thing. It's not this group's Paul. This group's Apollos. This group's Cephas. This group's King's people. This group's First Baptist Methodist. This, we're identified with, you know, um, with this apostle and that apostle and this, that, and the other thing. It's like, you know, you say the same thing. What's the same thing? What's he going to get at? This crucified Messiah that you're too ashamed to associate with in the glory of his cross. Because it obliterates your need to be distinguished by your heroes and by your your little particular flavors that you all like. Anyway, I want you to say the same thing. That's a deep agreement. And that there be no schisms or divisions among you. That's that's what he gets at here for the regathering. But that you be knit together. That you be made complete in the same mind and the same judgment. That's a reference to the prophecy. And then he ends by talking about the day of the Lord in chapter 15. Because some were denying the resurrection. But we'll get back to that. All right. So he's calling them to unity. And in verse 17, he's... Has already said he, he doesn't care that people are criticizing his ministry. He doesn't care that some people have joined his club. And, and some have done that because he baptized them, apparently. So in verse 16, I, I did, I did baptize the house of Stephanus. I don't know who else I baptized. I don't even remember. And here's why in verse 17, because the Messiah did not send me to baptize, but to evangelize, to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Okay. Christ did not send me to baptize. But to evangelize, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be emptied. So this cross, which was an absolute scandal in the first century AD, it was obscene. It wasn't the decor for a church. It was abhorrent. It was a a statement of torture for those who are not truly civilized people who deserve death. Truly civilized means the the citizen of the Greco-Roman empire. Cultured person. Paul says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and to barbarians. That's who the cross was for. Barbarians, those of the outsiders. Paul says, my Messiah was hung on one of those. And it wasn't the cross of 21st century America. It was a sign of shame and rejection and torture. And, and 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 he says this is what you have to put out there, not only as your message, but as your identity, because that's the way he w- he came. The Messiah King hung on that stick. Which obliterates all your worldly values that you're taking the gospel to push yourself forward in. To establish your ministry. That's the opposite of the cross's scandal. And Paul says this was the foundation of your whole community. You lose the foundation. Everything is built wrong. Who cares if... Well, I mean, ultimately he cares later. But to start talking about tongues instead of prophecy... You're worried about tongues instead of prophecy right now. You don't even live by the scandal of the cross. You've rejected that and then moved on into prophetic ministry. So why are we talking about prophetic ministry first? Well, you know, there's a guy, you know, there's there was a man having a, a, a sinful relationship with his stepmother. Paul's like, well, yeah, I'm not even going to talk about that first. What am I going to talk about first? This cross you guys are resisting. You take the benefit of its salvation and and resist the scandal. We've become masters at this. And and we need the prophetic formula for what to do during our times. Why don't we just return to Jesus Christ? Why don't we just do that? Everything else we say, The, the more right it is, the wronger it is if it's not founded on this. Because then it gives you that sense that you got something right. Yeah, I bear witness with that. Yeah, because the spirit was saying something there. But if it's not rooted in the cross, which shouldn't have to be prophesied because it's written in scripture. It's the apostolic teaching. If it's not rooted in this, the more right it is, the more deceptive it is. So the issue isn't which ones were right, which ones were wrong. The issue is where's the cross That permeates all that what's so-called apostolic ministry, mega churches, the prophets that are speaking. Where is the lifestyle that is willing to to scandalize others when it's lived and proclaimed? That's the real question. So you see, when we're talking about restoring the house of the Lord, I'm not talking about a model. Though I believe there's only a certain format that expresses this right. But that's Secondary. The first issue is if we're not convinced that Jesus Christ is just not going to be accepted by most of the world and we're willing to associate with him. If we're not willing to embrace that, then we're, we're the, the there's a bitter root poisoning the rest of the tree. So Paul says, I'm refusing this. I don't even know how many people I baptize. I'm, I'm refusing your tendency to associate with what you call a good speaker. Your lollipop. You like my speaking. Oh, some of you like Apollos. You're going to associate with him. Some of you like Cephas. He was more, you know, kind of hardcore Jesus follower. And some of you are claiming you're you're the true Christ followers. Paul's like none of that is working. You're using these good people and this good gospel for your selfish purposes. And that's the way you are identified as a church. Paul says, if you do that, when I came and he uses himself as an example, I didn't try to wow you or do something clever with the way I spoke, because when I do that, the cross of Christ becomes empty. If if we're willing for the scandalizing cross of Christ, God will anoint us with extraordinary power. And Paul's saying, I don't want to get it any other way. Guys, please remember, to whom he's speaking, charismatics, who in 1 Corinthians 1, seven, Paul says, yeah, you're not falling short in any gift. That includes the mighty word of knowledge, and that includes healings. Although a bunch of them are sick and have already died, some are getting healed. Everything's mixed. He does not doubt that they're fully charismatic. That's all great. He says, but you, you still don't have power. You don't have power because you've avoided the cross. You, you have your gifts, but you don't have the cross at the root of who you are. So gifts can have an impact. This cross always bears fruit. It brings transformation. We live in a, in a Christian culture of impact without fruit. Impact. How could that man have fallen? How could he have all these? What's, I'm trying to keep this PG How could I have all these bad things going on in darkness, but what a ministry. Look at all the people affected. Yeah, gifting can have impact, but fruit only comes to an actual life. You can't lead from a pulpit ever. I hope you can teach sometimes from a pulpit. Okay, well, so it's the power of the cross. That's why Paul's like, I I am not letting go of that. This is the only thing I determined, that I would know Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I bore the image of that cross, right? Okay, this is another text I was going to look at, so I'll just quote it for you. It's a well-known passage, right? When I came to you, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony or the mystery of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and this one crucified. He doesn't even mention the resurrection yet. He wants to keep it right here. Look, he's saying to them, I love you guys too much to try to impress you with my speaking abilities. I determined to stay close to this scandal. So I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Guys, that's Paul's seminary. He went out of his way to be weak and fearful and trembling. Because he knew God would anoint that and God is the X factor. God's the one he wanted to take the field. When he spoke. Are you hearing me? So he said, so I'm focusing on the crucified one. I'm not going to try to impress you. I'm not going to try to gain followers to me. I'm with you in weakness. Right. I don't have rhetorical skill. And I believe Paul was trained in some rhetoric. He came up in the house of Gamaliel and Gamaliel was the only Jewish Household school that allowed education in Greek education, which always had rhetoric. All these homeschool moms will tell you that. (laughs) Classical education always has rhetoric. That comes right from centuries before Paul. Plus, he uses rhetoric when he speaks sometimes. He was trained, but he's like, I'm not going to use it consciously to impress you. I'm not confident at all in myself. To the point where I'm shaking God, please don't let me mess this up. Because if I influence them, their faith will be in in the wisdom of men and not the power of God. That's how jealous he was to look the fool. That was not consciously being obnoxious. That was associating with a crucified Messiah. This is the foundation. Okay, so I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my. What's what's the next part? And my and my my what? My speech and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. See, but it's not one without the other. You have Paul says you have gifts, but I have power. You could be trained in the gifts. Paul even said to the Corinthians, those who are bragging will see what kind of power they have. Because the kingdom, when I get there, you'll see power. He's able to say this. Because he allowed himself to be crushed by the cross. So God anointed him. So I came to you in all this weakness, fear, and in much trembling. But I was also demonstrating the spirit and the power so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. What happens when the cross gets restored? How many attending Christians are falling away at that time? Because their faith was always in the wisdom of men, and there's been no, not enough shaking to prove it. The word, back to my chapter 1, verse 18. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So let me say a couple of other things about that. First of all, the message of the cross And when I say message, I don't just mean talking about it. I mean living it as a lifestyle and preaching out of that lifestyle. The message of the cross divides and it defines. Paul told the Corinthians that uh, in 2 Corinthians that we're giving off a fragrance of Christ to God. Right? And he says to those who are dying, we are the stench of death. But to those who believe... We're a fragrance of life. There's no way around it. right? When, when we are walking with Christ and bearing testimony to who he is, there's some people to whom we smell like the flowers of heaven. And the very same people will give off a stink of death to others. We're not going to look pretty and we're not going to smell pretty to everyone. We can't try. Our focus is not the way we're impressing people, our focus is the cross of Christ. Lord help us. Because that same scent stinks to some people. They hate it. And just like they did with Stephen, they're gonna cover their ears, gnash their teeth, and run at us. They hate it. And other people are like, I'm finally feeling the life I've always been longing for. Tell me more. It divides. When we blur the division, it's because we're blurring the cross. Again, we're not, okay, we're not going to manipulate people to get saved in the flesh, but neither are we going to be obnoxious and be jerks so that we can cause this division. We're, we're not self-appointed martyrs. We don't have a martyrdom complex. Our focus is Jesus and the actual gospel of salvation that he was crushed for us and we are associated with him. We don't care who else we're associated with are associated with him and those who serve him. Right, Those who fear you will be glad when they see me. Don't be ashamed of the Lord's bond servant. That's Paul speaking from prison. Lord, help my heart. This message associates us with a Messiah who was rejected, who was maligned, who was abused, who was tortured, who was degraded, who was disgraced and who was murdered. But God anoints the message of that man with power. Because God's not interested in our clever speech and the way we can finagle and look good to everybody. He's not interested in that. So he's not going to endorse it. But if we want to go the way of his son, his spirit will just rest on those people. It's called crucifixion and resurrection. We embody crucifixion. God gives us resurrection. That's the wisdom of God. So our, well, let me, yeah, okay. So the the original... Context of this gospel, I already talked about the obscenity, brutality of the cross. Those who were non-citizens, who are t- being treated as less human, were put on the cross so that they would die before they died. So they'd be stripped of any kind of honor and any kind of humanity. There's no bathroom break. There's no way to bat the, the flies and the birds away. You hang there until you can't breathe anymore. Unless you were given mercy to die early like the three who were crucified together. But Jesus voluntarily gave up his spirit to indicate this was God's plan for him. In any case, the Romans weren't really impressed with the Jewish religion. They only had one God when the Romans had many gods. The Jews to them were virtual atheists. You only have one God. That is so boring. we have a God for this and a God for that, and you go to that temple and this temple and that temple, and we got it all going on, and these Jews only have one God, and they have their quirky little thing, and they don 't eat all the good stuff, and they don 't hang out with us or we're, you know and so then here comes this Jewish offshoot that says, not only do we only have one God, but our King hung on this cross, and we proudly say that, yay, how that's awesome. Wow, you guys are really super impressive. Yeah, we have nothing with which to impress you. Here's the thing, though. When when we preach and Grandma's got some giant goiter right here and we pray for her, mysteriously, it just goes away. All these things just start happening in our midst. And these same folks have this very, very mysterious love for one another and are loyal to this king. The more we persecute and kill them, the more they stop, start popping up. So there's a scandal about them, but there's also resurrection anointing on them. It's the mystery of the cross. We're not trying to impress people. We're trying to embrace the cross as a fragrance to God, then he anoints us and transforms hearts so that we don't have to do that part. God does it. How should we respond as the modern church? We should repent. That's what we should do. We should repent of our lust for notoriety and acceptance in our world, for elite status, for compromise so that we can be accepted, for building a church that accommodates our selfishness rather than accommodates the cross and the mission. We should humble ourselves during this time. This is the key thing. This is one of the great ways we embrace the cross as the winds of change are blowing all over the place. We should humble ourselves through repentance. We should recapture our prayer lives. Prayer is a breath of humility. We make room for it because we need God. If we don't pray, we're saying, I don't, I don't need you. Now, our, our theology may not say that, but our lifestyle is. So just being prayerful is a mark of humility. Fasting is a mark of humility because we're just not always doing what we want. Reconciling with people that we've broken relationship with. Or seeking reconciliation is a mark of humility. Cultivating community is a mark of humility. It forces us out of selfishness. Upon which many churches are predicated. You can do church without the things that break you of your selfishness. Come to our church. You'll like it the best. We have the best concert. And then we have the best preaching and all the things that make life convenient for you come to our church, not theirs. That's consumerism. It's the pride of man. And we've mastered it and put a choir robe on it with the belt buckle that's shaped like a cross. We've predicated too much on our selfish desires rather than simple humility. Cultivating community is a mark of humility, submitting to the Lord. Is humility, submitting to the church. I mean, church-wide deference, not weird mutual control. I mean, Ephesians 521, submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Some people don't even have church to submit to, they just go and come. Some prominent leaders don't even have community to whom they submit. So how are we gonna send that vibe into the way we make disciples in our neighborhoods and cities? It's a lack of humility that's a lack of church and a lack of submission. And I'm not talking about certain leaders controlling everything because that's pride too. try to manufacture this without the spirit just becomes a cult. So it's weird control on one extreme or avoidance on the other. I know I have an idea. Why don't we just return to the cross of Christ? As humility that requires family to be born out. For us, I would encourage us to reread the Gospels. We read these passages in First Corinthians Read the mission and the the experiences of the church in Acts and concentrate on these things. And let's. Let's rediscover the passion of the Christ, not the movie, the gospel. Let's talk about it. Let's help disciple one another in it and apply these principles to the things we're going through, because that's not always easy to carry the cross through valleys. The valley's hard enough without a cross. And then let's motivate ourselves, motivate one another to do it. Discuss, disciple, and dare. Let's discuss these things in the spirit. Let's disciple one another and let's dare to do something about it. Let me touch on these other things a little more briefly. Regathering the church in the spirit of love. I'll just refer to this more in passing. My passage is 1 Corinthians 11:17 and following. I'll look at a little bit of that passage and try to resist the temptation to expound it. Paul then shifts from his whole whole section on being identified with the cross to what the church looks like when it's gathered. There's a whole section in Scripture just on that topic. He says, in giving this instruction now, I don't praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Oh, we're going to church. Yeah, you're making things worse the way you do, not better. Now, I'm not saying that. Paul's saying that. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that schisms, divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper as if we ever do that. So lacking any oftentimes, I guess this anyway, we don't have time for me to just pander to everyone. So I'm just going to say it. We're so lacking in covenant mentality that the idea of the Lord's Supper being other than a service during a larger service based on convenience rather than based on sacrificial fellowship is, it's, it's inconceivable to us. And for them it was, it was common. It was what, it's what you do. We'll risk our lives for this. There are churches in, in restricted areas right now in the East, in the Middle East, even some places in the West. Just to do this once they risk much. We avoid it and we're free to do it. Oftentimes in the West. Paul says then the way these Corinthians were coming together, they were maintaining their divisions. They weren't meeting together for the Lord's Supper. And Paul saw that as something that even compromised their health. Which he goes on to say. So it's not to eat the Lord's Supper because in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One's hungry and another is drunk. Then he goes on to say, you know, you can eat... Your private meals at home, there's nothing wrong with that. But there should be a deliberate occasion when the family gets together consistently and breaks bread in the name of Jesus. Because you're family and you need one another. You need one another. So don't leave one another out. And he goes on to talk about sharing all the gifts and eating together. But I'm going to give you my list uh, and, and move on. We must restore the Lord's Supper in the way we gather as a distinct family covenantal meal. Doesn't mean we have to do it every single time, but the spirit of that meal should permeate who we think we are. We should consciously overcome our natural divisions. Amen! We should value the entire body. We should define and imply. Define and employ the charismatic gifts. I had self-correct, not imply them, employ. We should define and employ the charismatic gifts. Because we love one another, we should get better at prophesying. Because somebody is going to need a prophetic word that comes from deep in the heart of God. We're going to need that. We're going to need healing. We're going to need words of wisdom and words of knowledge. We should honor those who are not naturally honorable in the world's eyes. So our response should be, again, repenting, reconciling broken relationships, examining our own hearts. Paul says to do that in this larger passage. And again, we should talk about these things out of First Corinthians, the book of Acts, etc. I'm moving quickly in these points. Number three, restore the church's prophetic voice. I want to say a few things about this. How are we doing? You guys... I don't have a lot more to go, but if you want to take a break and stand and start over again and stretch, do you want to do that? How many people want to stand up and stretch? Oh, one person. Poor Gina. Two people. Okay, Gina's my wife, so that's the majority. Let's stand up. Let's stand up. Take a breath stretch out. So just take a deep breath. We're, we're farther than halfway, don't worry. But I thought, I'm feeling warm in here. Maybe you guys are feeling it. 1 Corinthians 14. By the way, this is our last gathering of 2020, like this. That's why I'm teaching longer and that's why I'm giving this announcement. So we're done for the holidays. Uh we'll reconvene probably in January, you will get emails. But this is giving us a lot of food for thought, prayer and discussion and discipling um, in our groups. 1 Corinthians 14, pursue love, yet desire earnestly the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. We must restore the church's prophetic voice. To prophesy means to speak forth what the Spirit is saying. Paul uses the word prophet in this passage, probably to refer to people who are not necessarily Ephesians 4 prophets, but who prophesy often. They're bent toward that gift. They speak with prophecy. In Ephesians 4, there's a, there's a leadership role that brings consistent foundation to the church. That's also what a prophet is. But the principles should overlap. Paul teaches here very simple uh, um, principles of accountability and judging prophecy. We are not in the Old Testament. New Testament prophets should be immersed in a community of faith and held accountable. Their prophecies judged. If we don't have number one and we don't have number two, then number three is going to be hurting. But the alternative is not to shut down the prophets. The alternative is to immerse them in number one and number two and then say, now, start roaring like a lion in the context of community. Because we're, we're limping, even when we're accurate now. Because it just feeds a foundationless church. Yeah. Yeah. All the more during a shaking when we need the comfort of the prophets. It depends now on other things. We don't have God is my refuge and God is my strength. A very present help in trouble because one and two are lacking. And so this, the prophets and everybody gets nervous. Rather than having a... in what they say and what might come to pass and not come to pass. Rather than having the security of one and two, the refuge. And I mean that in God. Prophecy is different in the New Testament. Some of the principles, some of the tendencies, the styles of the Old Testament prophets overlap with New Testament prophets. But not their level of authority. They're not flawless. When the Old Testament prophets were gripped by the Word of the Lord and the Spirit, they were flawless. They spoke on the level of Scripture. Their ministry was fulfilled in Christ, not New Testament prophets. The prophets of the Old Testament, right up into John the Baptist, all came to fruition in the word become flesh, who fans out into five ministries who equip one body. That entity is what fulfills the prophetic ministry of the Old Testament. Prophets in the New have only one part of that, And anyone can prophesy. That means we all have to hold one another accountable. Prophets do not rise up to the prominent place in the church. If anyone does, do, if anyone does, it's the apostle and they go down to the basement to hold the thing up. Not get prominent. Then prophets are with them secondarily. Teachers feed the flock. And then the flock fulfills the word of the Lord. Therefore, Paul instructs here, let the the others pass judgment. Let them sift through. Let them sift through. And I'm basically teaching my point. I may not have to read much. Let them sift. The prophets should be in a community. Things should be sifted by the community. Right? When When Agabus had an accurate global word, there's famine coming. Good job, Agabus. We know that you were in your thing here, in your element. That you were coming out of that. Then 10 chapters later in Acts, Agabus has another prophecy which was accurate. He ties up his hands and he says, "Um, the owner of this belt is going to be tied up just like this by the Jews in Jerusalem when he goes there. That was an accurate prophetic word. Then what? Then the people said, Paul, don't go. Don't go. Don't go. Right? Based on that prophecy, which was accurate. The people said, don't go. And Paul said, I'm going. Because I'm, I mean, he didn't say this, but it's implied paraphrastically. That's paraphrase, okay? I am called there. And if obeying the Lord in Jerusalem means I get imprisoned and die, so be it. I'm ready for that. That's this part and this part, one and four, just saying. But here's what's interesting. Before that story in the same chapter, Luke tells us that people were already telling Paul through the spirit not to go to Jerusalem. Remember that? It doesn't say they were predicting he was going to get hurt. It says they were telling him not to go. They were giving him direction and it says direction through the spirit. And Paul said, nope. Because what Luke means by through the spirit means they were getting some things accurate. That's why they were speaking. Don't go because they knew he'd suffer there, but they didn't have the conclusion fully right. So they were speaking through the spirit, but they were the ones speaking. And then we see that we see. You know, that's expanded more later in the chapter when Agabus says he's going to be bound and the others say, don't go. And Paul says, no, I'm going. I'm testing this prophetic activity. This part is from the Lord. This part is not his advice. Because there's no one single prophet or band of prophets that give all the truth. It's the body. So if certain people are more prominent prophetically, then the body still has to sift it out or it will never work. This has to be restored so that we're confident when we prophesy. This is how important the body is. We're not in the Old Testament anymore. The whole body fulfills the word of the Lord because Christ is our head. So prophets have a function within this. And until we restore the the house of the Lord and get prophets in the house of the Lord, everything will be askew, even when they're right. Because there's no house built to give it expression and direction. It goes into the man-made spaces we've made for ourselves. It doesn't have a place to gain traction. So it's like, okay, you were accurate. Great, you have a gift. And where's the word of the Lord? The scriptural gospel. Where are the people of God who surround you? How do we know we trust you? Well, we don't want, we don't care because you're popular, you're well known. You carry some power. We're impressed by your gifts. I don't want to know that. I want to know his wife. I want to know his kids and I want to know his church. Accuracy doesn't move me. I had very accurate prophecies while I still had things to iron out in my relationship with my wife, which would have direct bearing on my ministry to the church. We're wowed by the wrong things because we're not crushed by the cross as a community. So when these things are restored, we can, refounded, regathered, we can restore prophecy. The passages I was going to read, that first Corinthians 14, 1 through 5. By the way, you know what? Okay, verse 2. For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. But one who prophesies speaks to people for edification and exhortation and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. The one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I wish you all spoke in tongues. Come on, sha I? But even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues. And here's why he says that. Unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. He's talking about in the church, prophecy is more valuable. So here's my list of application To finish this point, number one, let's restore tongues in private. The reason why the Corinthians were allowing it to spill over into church, which they shouldn't have, that is tongues, is because Paul prayed for them. They were baptized in the spirit. They spoke in other tongues. So should we. It should just be in private. We should be doing that generously and extravagantly in private. Amen. Okay. Secondly, prophesy in the gathering, speak forth what the spirit is saying when you get together, which also means we need to get good at that. We have to be immersed in the word and get some good practice and learning from people who are experienced when they sense something in their inner ear, when they see a picture, when they sense something in their heart. We have to learn how to discern what God's actually saying to them, what he's saying to me. If he's speaking at all, let's get good at this. We have a family that can help us along, right? Amen, yes. Okay, so, so how many of, how many of you, you don't have to actually raise your hands, but how many of you are born again Christians, you have the Holy Spirit? And just about everybody, maybe everybody raises his or her hand. So then I ask, how many of you, since you received the Spirit, have lived utterly sinlessly? Also raise your hand. No one raises his or her hand, including me. Oh, I thought you had the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but I do have the Holy Spirit when I'm born again. I was 16 years old. But guess what? I had to cultivate my ethical life in the Spirit. Why can I cultivate my moral life and not also have to cultivate my spiritual gift life? Why is that? Why am I judged for not emptying a hospital if some people have gotten healed? But the same person who's judging me saying, well, if you have the gift of healing, why don't you empty a hospital? So I'm saying, okay, have you lived flawlessly since you received the Holy Spirit when you were baptized as an infant? (laughs) No, you're allowed to grow morally. That's nice for you, but the rest of us with the gifts, we're not allowed to grow in our gifts. So even though we have the Holy Spirit, we have to grow in our use of the gifts of the Spirit. Amen. Amen? Amen? It's not magic, it's life. That sounded probably cooler than what it actually means, but I hope... It does mean something significant um, Prophesy to unveil God to the lost. That's actually a passage there during the gathering. Paul said prophesy and lost people will have their mail read and will fall on their face and say, God is among you and then test the prophecies. I already talked about that. Let's desire the gifts. Let's desire prophecy. Let's learn. Let's practice and let's restore the apostolic teaching on the gifts in these chapters. Let's discuss disciple and dare. And finally, ending where we began. We recapture the church's destiny on the day of the Lord. In chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, I'd like to read a passage in chapter 15, verse 20 and following. Just a few comments on this since we started with it. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. See what we're doing, how we're going through the scriptures? How about that? You can do that too. Come on, you guys got smartphones, you, you can read your Bible. 20 through 28. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's At his coming. You you notice how Paul's taking his time explaining this? Because always, 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 the apostles preached the gospel, I mean consistently is my point, that had as its terminus the coming back of Jesus. It was a consistent theme. And even Peter preaching to Jews in Jerusalem, you guys repent. So that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he might send Jesus. So you Jews in Jerusalem, you have to repent. Because you'll be refreshed as always when people repent. No matter how much time goes by, whenever people repent, the Lord sends refreshing. That's called revival. But also, and he adds this, that he might send Jesus, who's the Christ appointed for you. Whom heaven must receive until the time of the restoration of all things. Always in his preaching, even Cornelius, the capstone of Peter's preaching right before he tells them whoever believes is saved and the spirit fell right before that. He said that this Jesus God appointed as the judge of everyone. That was his message. It's like his climactic point. It's like who even preaches that way? And the climax of the message is Jesus is coming back to judge everything. Get ready. And these are just two little examples. I mean, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, this entire chapter in 1st in Corinthians, the entire book of Revelation, huge chunks of the Gospels, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, all about the last time's trouble, Jesus coming back, the son of man after the days of tribulation. This was constantly put in the view of the church. So that we would be sober, which is exactly that first Peter passage. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be sober and self-controlled for the sake of prayer. Don't pray your little whimsical worldly prayers. Pray day of the Lord prayers. Pray things that matter in the light of that day. That day, the vision of that day, eternalizes our prayers. For since by man. okay, for those who are Christ at his coming, that's the day of the Lord when he comes There's the moment he comes that's called the day of the Lord. You expand on that. There's the days of tribulation that's included in the day of the Lord. And then there's even a little bit after he comes. That's all part of the day of the Lord because all of heaven and earth will be renewed. So it's a longer period. Seven ish years. It's also one day when Jesus. Cracks the sky at the blast of a trumpet. And all of our hopes and dreams come true and make every period of darkness worth it. Then those who are Christ's, they will be raised at his parousia, at his coming. Then comes the end. That's, what, that's why Paul's saying, y'all who don't believe in the resurrection, then you don't believe in the eternal purpose and the coming of Jesus. Because our physical resurrection triggers the whole plan of God coming to a close. Or it's part of it, I should say. Now, we don't doubt, we don't have a doctrine that that rejects physical resurrection. We all believe we're going to be raised from the dead, right? No one in America, Christian Orthodox, is going to deny the resurrection. But I fear practically in the spirit of our minds, we do. It's not a reality. Eh, We're not really going to rise one day and be judged for our works. (laughs) That's not really going (laughs) to happen. Oh, come on. Healthy, happy, and wise. That's all I want and need in this life. We deny it. We're we're, we're orthodox in our theory and we're heretical in the spirit of our minds and our lifestyle. That's why Paul called the resurrection a mystery. You can know the doctrine and still be blind to it. You can pass a lie detector test and still be blind to it. Not be living for that day. And then the Lord will come back for all those who are in love with his appearing. It's one thing to believe the doctrine. It's another thing to be in love with his appearing. Come on, we're, this is sci-fi. This is Holy Ghost sci-fi right now that we need from the word in our spirit. Or we'll be exposed when the shaking shakes more. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he's abolished all rule and authority and power. He must reign until he's put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he's put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in uh, in subjection, it's evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. Then when all things are subjected to him, you could read this again on your own, What he's saying is the father will not be subject to Jesus. On that day, Jesus will be subject to the father. Sorry. (laughs) When all things are subjected to the son, then the son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all, which should be our goal in everything we do. We're working for that day. That's the day I'm working for. God, open the eyes of our hearts to see this day with a little more clearly. Just get one little more, one little pinhole, one little tiny bit of the mosaic, just a little bit more today, Lord. Awaken my heart to the day of the Lord. You know what John said? I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So he had a little mini Lord's day, didn't he? But he was in the spirit. Lord, help us to be in the spirit on the Lord's day so that we could see a little bit more of the Lord's day. I got one more passage for you. Just one more. Guys, we're almost there. <coughs> This is down in verse 50. I'm telling you this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Look, I'm telling you a mystery. We won't all sleep, but we will all be changed. Uh, Let me tell you just a really quick story. I remember that I was taking a nap on the couch in in my house, the Brownsville days. Just Everything was was, schedule was crazy. Late nights, early mornings. I'm taking a nap. Okay, there's my excuse for taking a nap. But I had a vision of God in my sleep. And, and I don't know how to articulate what I saw. It was really impossible to explain. I can't even tell you physically what it looked like. But I saw eternity. I don't, I'm not saying I saw it exhaustively. I just, everything I saw in this visionary experience was not temporary. It was all incorruptible. I just caught a glimpse of it. I saw it. So there's nothing in my purview mentally and emotionally when I saw this thing in in this nap vision. There was nothing that was temporary. Everything was foreign to me. It was all eternal. And my reaction was to fight like a dog to get out of the vision. Because it was intolerable to my heart. There's too much eternity. Too much everlasting. And there's too much temporary in me. And I'm like, get me out of this, get me out of this. It wasn't like, woo, like a little angel fluttering around. <laughs> I had a vision. I, there's no way. I, I, I mean, I was like fighting through something to get out of it. And then I, I just woke up and repented. I knew what just happened. Point taken. Forgive me, Lord. And I was in revival, man. But still, it was revival. So much on our terms. So much on our terms, which is that's what things went in that direction eventually. So much mixture. But when I looked into ah mixture, when I looked into no mixture, I couldn't even handle it. My little heart. (laughs) Just too conditioned by what's temporary. What will die. What will pass away. I was so conditioned I couldn't even swallow a, a little glimpse of what is eternal. So Paul says, I'm telling you a mystery. This ain't the way it's going to be. We won't sleep. We will be raised from the dead. We will be changed. This is going to happen. For those of us who believe and belong to Christ when he returns, we will be clothed with glorified bodies that can never die. They can have fellowship with God. His dream will come true and we will be that dream. This is going to happen. Take a little time and think about it. Let us, you and me, start to wash our brains and our hearts in eternal realities. Let's wash the dust of this Egypt off just a little bit as often as we can to condition our hearts to live the way we're called to live now. We will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. You know what that last trumpet is? That's the day of the Lord. There would have been six blasts leading up to that point. Each one a disaster on the earth. And then the second blast, the seventh blast. Public display in the sky. Clouds, like third, close encounters of the third time, mothership times a bazillion. (laughs) All the tribes, all Jews around the world, nations around the world looking up saying that Antichrist had duped us. And there's more to that. I won't go into all that. And there he is. And they'll start to weep and wail and mourn. Uh, Like over a son who's been long lost kind of thing. And there he'll be in the clouds, public display around the entire world in a blaze of glory. And then it's really going to be different. And you know what this all sounds like, by the way? I just felt that demon remind me of this. So I'll just remind uh, uh, him and all of us. Here's what we're like talking about this. We look like a villain and a fool hanging on a stick. We're not going to impress the world with this story. But when they all stand before him, we'll be vindicated. Right. Yeah. But we got to wait for that day. Sometimes I hear things in my ear. I, that's why I paused. You didn't hear it. I heard it. That's why I pause. Because I hear things sometimes. My first semester teaching at Brownsville, we had 120 students. They're all sitting right here just in a church building like this, chapel. And and I'm teaching away, and the room began to shake and thunder. We were ready to flip out. Just all the color lose, leaving every face. We're looking at each other. And the guy in the front row, Rod, what was his last name? Rod um, Lashbrook. Remember Rod Lashbrook? He was a Mm -hmm. a rocket scientist of sorts. He was an engineer. And he's like, "Ah, that was one of the naval planes. I know the engine. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Rod. We don't have the Pentecost here. Just let it ride, man. We're children. And we, you know, we were used to hearing airplanes, you know, the Blue Angels, were, you know, common, but that was really it was different, it was close, but it was still one of the one of the navy jets, so <laughs> Dare to dream, dare to dream baby. One day, one day. At the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, And this mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written. Finally, it will come about. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore... My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and close in prayer.